0: Acts chapter 9. This passage is one of the three primary pivot points in the book of Acts. The first one would have been Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes down and the apostles' ministry changes. Then you've got Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is martyred and the persecution begins and things kind of change in that aspect. And then you have Acts chapter 9. And it is probably the most extraordinary example of spiritual transformation of one individual uh, that exists in the Bible. If for no other reason than if you and I were taking the Bible for the first time and we were reading from Genesis to Revelation straight through and we came upon the book of Acts and we started to study it like we're studying it and then we see what's going on with Paul and we see how violent he is and how opposed he is to the gospel, we would get to chapter 9 and this would take us by surprise. Now we've studied the Bible enough; we know the story enough that that it doesn't necessarily take us by surprise because we know about Saul's conversion. But imagine if you were holding this in, the, in your hands for the first time, and you're reading it like a novel, and wow, you're, what's going on? And this Paul guy, and he's crazy, and he's opposing, and he's and he's and he's violent. He's run up to Damascus, and all of a sudden, we see this incredible transformation that takes place in his life, that that not only blows us away in terms of the grace of God, but then as we keep reading into the New Testament, we see that this man becomes the primary evangelist to the Gentiles and that he is our primary source, knowing that the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible, but that he is our primary source for the explanation of spiritual doctrine. Now, if you really read the Bible for the first time, that would blow us away that God would take somebody that was so against him and use him to be the one person we would look at and go, Apostle Paul, that, that was the guy that really knew what he was doing. Now, there's no warning that this will happen other than we know God's power to change lives. We saw that next to and beyond. And we know that God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and rich in love. But this account gives us an even greater appreciation of we know that the early church was facing hardship. We know that they hadn't lost their spiritual resiliency. They they hadn't become overly discouraged. There's still courage there. And the test that had started with the internal family struggle of Ananias and Sapphira and then another arrest and then Stephen's martyrdom and the, this persecution, that that hadn't caused them to, to lose their, their passion for God. But it's interesting, I was, I was studying this week that, I realized that from chapters 1 to 6, that God's presence is obvious. God's presence is manifest with them. We don't need to recount it all, but just think back through what happened. The coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, and the shaking of the room, and the flames on top of their heads, and and the languages they spoke in. And then the vitality and growth of the church and the healing and the boldness and then, and then the church becomes even stronger and Acts 4 says there's more shaking and filling and, and that they're beginning to get more and more bold and then his presence, this is obvious, when they go into jail and the angel leads them out in the night. God's presence we see in chapters 1 to 6 is there again and again, whether it's the spirit or an angel or, or whatever. When we get to chapter 7, it kind of stops. Stephen sees Jesus when he's martyred. He looks up into heaven, and Jesus is standing at the throne. But but as the persecution continues, we don't see God coming to the people's defense. We don't see the Spirit moving in the way that he did in Acts 2. We don't see the, the manifest, obvious presence of God, other than Philip being told, go to the desert. So you have to wonder even though the disciples didn't lose their boldness, and even though the church is adding hundreds and thousands of people every day, you have to wonder at some point whether they kind of said, why isn't the Lord protecting us? Why isn't the Lord stepping in at this point and and defending us? And I wondered if they thought, is it going to be different with the Holy Spirit? You know, Jesus was with us every day, and we got to experience His presence, you know, literally, but Maybe it's going to be different with the Spirit. Maybe there are going to be times where we don't feel like he is as close as we thought. Whatever the case is, it's hard to imagine that at this point in Acts, Acts chapter 9, that the believers felt a sense of settledness, that they felt a sense of of real peace in the face of this persecution. Now, there's a truth there as we think about that that I, I really want you to understand this morning. And it reveals itself in two different ways in this text. And I want you to not only believe this truth, but I want you to understand the importance of his application. I gave the title of this message, Heaven Doesn't Stay Silent. Because there are times in our life when we're at the brink of uncertainty or, or trial or where for a time it seems like the presence of God is a little bit removed from us. And in those times... We not only learn that God is gracious and and sufficient beyond our comprehension, but he also uses those times to very intentionally refine us and push us forward in new ways. So I want to give you a couple main principles this morning and then we're going to kind of take apart this text a little bit. We probably won't get as far as we hope to and we'll take part of the middle of the text next week. But let me give you the first principle this morning that that lays the groundwork for this study of Saul. The principle is that heaven does not stay silent when God's people are in crisis. Heaven does not stay silent when God's people are in crisis. Now, I don't want you to, don't just glide over that truth because it seems really obvious, because I'm sure there are many times in our life where we've wondered if that's really true. Think back to some time in your life where you had a trial that, that seemed impossible to solve, where you cried out to the Lord, but your faith wasn't quite, wasn't quite there. You were wavering a little bit, and you, you wondered what to do, and, and you're not quite sure that God's really going to answer. You, not that you didn't trust him, but you just, you just sensed that something was off. How long did your confidence endure as you waited? Were you encouraged, or, or were you bothered? Did it mature you spiritually, or did it cause a regression in your walk? And most importantly, what I want us to see this morning is, what did the Lord call you to as a result of it? You see, that's the real key to this type of difficult situation that the apostles are facing and that you've faced maybe in your life, is that God doesn't just take the apostles and say, you're being persecuted, I'm I'm just going to comfort you and encourage you through this trial and just kind of manage it and and give you some peace and, and kind of get you to the other side. What God does in these situations is he has two very specific things that he wants to accomplish in our life. He doesn't want to just get us through. He wants to produce conviction and he wants to give us an assignment. When you have difficulty, when you're facing trial, when it seems like the presence of God isn't as close as you want it to be, God is doing two things. He is fostering and stoking deeper conviction, and he is giving you an assignment that you may not even see yet. Now, there are examples of this all throughout the Bible. And we don't have to turn to them because we went off time, but they're so familiar to you because you know the backstory: Abraham in a foreign land. Moses alienated from everybody. The people of Egypt suffering until they cried out to God, the people needing his presence, and then God creates the tabernacle, Elijah feeling sorry for himself and kind of pouting in the cave, Uh, Nehemiah in captivity, but but pining for Jerusalem, Mary and Joseph that were given an assignment that turned their world upside down. Over and over again, we see in Scripture that when believers come into trial, that God doesn't just manage them, He says, I want you to understand something more about me, and I want you to get busy. God never allows us to wallow, listen to this, He never allows us to wallow in self-pity, ever. And we don't have any excuse to say, well, Paul, you don't understand the situation. It doesn't matter. God does not want you to wallow in self-pity, because what's the first word of self-pity? Self. What about me and what am I feeling and what am I experiencing? It doesn't matter. Because the purpose of salvation, the purpose of the spiritual walk is not to say what about me, it's to say what about Christ? What has Christ done? What can Christ do? How is Christ sufficient? How is His Spirit in me? How is He training me? How is He guiding me? How is He stoking faith? How is He pushing me? What's He calling me to? That's the purpose. So He doesn't want us to just sit and be unhappy. And he doesn't want us to get dull to his mercy. Instead, he starts to create this deeper conviction and this deeper trust. And then he says, okay, you get that? I got work for you to do. I got something for you to accomplish. The same thing happens. Look at the text. I know we haven't read yet. Same thing happens in Acts 8 and 9. The pressure of the persecution causes the people to scatter. We see this at the start of chapter 8. The people start to scatter. They go away from Jerusalem. They start to settle in unlikely places like Samaria and Damascus. And while they're there, they begin to share their faith with passion and have discussion with people that, that had previously had nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Now they start to uh, share that with, with strong conviction. Now, let's go turn back three pages to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Because the last thing Jesus told the disciples is you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's chapter 2. And what will follow? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. And in all Judea and Samaria chapter 7, chapter 8, and to the uttermost part of the earth, chapter 12 and beyond. Now, in Acts 2 to 4, the people could have adapted what they were doing and played it safe, and that would have been understandable. But what God did by bringing this crisis to them is push them out of the nest and cause them to fulfill exactly what what Jesus had called them to do. It was a necessary impetus to get them to go forward. Would they have naturally gone to Samaria? Would they have naturally gone to Damascus? Why would you go to Damascus for Pete's sake? There was so much work to do in Jerusalem, and the church was thriving, and there's so much going on, and let's just stay here. But God didn't allow that. Persecution starts, and where do the people go? Samaria, Damascus. Jesus fulfills the calling in them by creating a situation that caused them now to go out and they become more fervent and more evangelistic and God's presence, even though it's not obvious, is still working in their life. And then you have this guy Saul. They're doing this while the attack is severe, but God has his own plans for the chief persecutor. Look back at chapter 9 and verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now stop there for a minute. The Spirit says that Saul was breathing threats and murders. The word in the Greek literally means to inhale. It means to to breathe for the point of giving you life. Okay, Why does the Spirit use that word? He uses that word to tell us that tracking down and killing Christians was what Saul lived to do. That he woke up in the morning and said, oh baby, I get to go kill some Christians. I get to go track them down. I'm going to go into the synagogues. I'm going to drag them out by their hair. We're going to beat them, and we're going to kill them, and we're going to stop this once and for all. Every single morning, he breathed that. Everything about him was was connected to personally opposing Jesus Christ and passionately getting Christians to shut up and for the gospel to stop spreading. He says in Acts chapter 26, When he talks to Agrippa on trial, he says, I was finding Christians, I was jailing them, I was approving of their deaths, I was publicly embarrassing them and punishing them in the synagogues, I forced them to blaspheme, and I was unashamed of it. It brought me happiness to go attack believers. Now, I want you to remember that. Keep that in your mind for just a couple minutes. Then he goes to the high priest and he says, I want some letters because I want to have leverage, I want to have clout, I want your endorsement, give me some letters, because I'm going to go up into Damascus, and I'm going to root these Christians out, and I'm going to grab them in the synagogues, and we're going to bring them back here, and we're going to punish them. Now at this point, he fully believes what he's doing is right. In the name of religion, he is saying, this is defensible, but how many know it's never right to do evil, justifying that good might come up? He doesn't get that he's evil. He doesn't get that he's wrong. And you can almost see him, just picture him as he's walking toward Damascus with with an arrogant stride, and he's close to the city limits of Damascus as chapter 9 begins, and he's he's walking with great arrogance and purpose and smugness and self-righteousness, and he's got his papers in his hands, and he's got his men with him, and he's ready to go to the synagogue. God has other plans. He's angry and he's hostile. Somehow, he's personally offended that the name of Jesus Christ is public and people are trusting him. And We don't know if it's because Jesus exposed the Pharisees or, or, or because of the corruption that they had. That they had. Managed and manipulated the law, and Jesus had condemned that, or whether he's like a lot of people, he knew that Jesus Christ was the only way, truth, and the life, but he just didn't want to yield to it. Whatever the case, the advance of the gospel and Christianity as a whole is not going to be hindered by this guy. It's not. In fact, the Lord is going to completely change the direction of what's happening, and the Lord's going to make his first active appearance. Since chapter 5, he confronts Saul. But I want you to see something very important. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't strike him dead on the spot. He doesn't say, I've had enough of you. I'm going to end this threat right here and now. Who do you think you are? I'm God. You're toast. You're dead. He doesn't do that. What does he do? Oh, this is so wonderful. He transforms his heart, and his mind, and he makes this guy the catalyst for the expansion of the gospel. And that's that's remarkable. And not only does he make him the catalyst for the expansion of the gospel then, but we're studying about him now. Paul couldn't have pictured this this morning, right? We're seeing Wisconsin. What's a Wisconsin? I'm still asking. What's a Wisconsin. I don't know. Why am I here? God takes the one who is most opposed and he turns him into the one who is most confident. And this is a very important spiritual principle I want you to see this morning that we cannot miss because it explains so much about how God works. God doesn't go after the symptoms. He goes after the source of the symptoms. God doesn't fight little skirmishes. Well, i got to stop this and this. Christians are being persecuted here and they're jailed here and this. He doesn't do that. He goes after the head of the snake. And he goes after the head of the snake in order to transform Saul's life. Not only does he confront what Saul's doing, but he completely transforms his heart. So what had been the hindrance to the gospel and the hindrance to the maturation of believers actually becomes its greatest strength and only God can do. Only God can create that kind of change. In the course of a moment, the course of history is changed because when man has his purposes and God intervenes, man's purposes have no chance. We can make the plans. We can figure out what we think is best. But when God intervenes, you don't have any power to counteract that. And that's the second principle I want you to see this morning and that we can trust in is that heaven does not say silent when God is being opposed. Think about this now in the perspective of all that's going on in the world and all that's going on in our country. The Lord will always defend his name. Always. So please don't get overly discouraged by the state of the world this morning or lose confidence that it's too far gone because the Lord's going to have his day. And all these leaders and arrogant people like the ones in Iran and Russia and Egypt who flaunt their power and think we're just going to wipe Israel off the map and they suppress Christianity and they think that they're like a modern day Saul that they're just going to stop Christ. I got news for you. Jesus has already won the victory and he will defend his people. Now this is a warning to us. Watch what you oppose and be sure that what you defend pleases the Lord. Hear that this morning, church. Watch what you oppose and be sure that what you stand for pleases the Lord. Because you and I are going to have all kinds of subtle and overt choices every day of what we're going to stand for and what we're going to stand against. And part of those choices will be whether or not we oppose what the Word of God says. Now, I know that seems unthinkable. Well, Paul, I'm a believer, and I'm in church, and it's snowy, and, and I love Lord. Good. I know you do. I do too. But we're still going to have all kinds of choices this week. They're going to test where we draw the line morally. And they're going to test how firm our character is. And they're going to test how much we allow our religious liberty, so to speak, to control us rather than the Word of God controlling us. Here's the bottom line. Be very, very careful not to oppose the Lord and be very, very careful never to diminish his name. That's what Paul was doing. Even though he's fighting the apostles and the gospel of Christ, look how heaven responds. Now we got to read our text. Let's take it from verse 3. As he's traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could not see anything. Leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Let's skip over the next section, because we're going to study it next week. For seven days, end of verse 10. For several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed, and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Heaven confronts Paul or Saul, and Jesus says to him, "Why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my followers." Not, why are you going after my disciples? Not, not, why are you hurting my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? The word there means to, to chase or pursue, to try to cause harassment, to kind of cause trouble. Saul thought that he was just threatening and persecuting a bunch of weak, uneducated, feeble, stubborn misguided people who had rejected Judaism and the law and were following this Jesus guy. But he doesn't understand that that's not who he was going after. He was actually trying to persecute Christ. And God says, I'm in heaven, and I'm insulted by that. You've been opposed to me. You have your own agenda, and I'm not going to stand for it. How do we know this was Paul's agenda? Because there's not one place in the Scripture where he can look at and say, well, I have a biblical right to oppose Jesus' disciples, and I have a biblical right to oppose what Jesus taught. If anything, the Pharisees should have read their Bible and said, this is the Messiah. But they didn't. They were thinking about themselves. And Jesus said, you're not persecuting my people. You're persecuting me. Listen, any opposition, any resentment, any criticism, about us standing for conviction as believers. Any persecution is not against us. It is really against the Savior if, if, if we are truly representing Christ and not ourselves. You represent yourself, people will criticize you and they'll be justified. But if you stand for Christ and I stand for Christ and we represent him and we live for him and we honor him, there are going to be people that hate us, there are going to be people that criticize us, there are people that revile us, there are people that even someday will persecute us. But Jesus says, it's not because of you, it's because of me. People don't like you, it's because you love me. Welcome to it. Everybody's not going to like you. In fact, a lot of people are going to hate your guts. You know why? Because you love And then Jesus says, and that's when you're really blessed. And you go, what? No, that's when you're really, that's when you really know you've got it. When you love me and people hate you, you're blessed. And we go, wait a second. Blessed means everything's happy. Uh Uh-uh. Blessed means you've got God's approval. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you. What's the next line? For my sake. Now look back at verse 5 for a minute. You guys got me worked up because you worship so well. (laughs) Verse 5, Saul immediately recognizes Jesus as Lord, even though he can't see him. Now, Saul was arrogant. He didn't back down to anybody. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He had been trained by the most respected teacher, Gamaliel, that anybody had. He had ascended to the top of the Pharisees. He was the one leading the persecution. Everybody knew Saul. But when Jesus appears and the light goes on, Saul falls to the ground and he's trembling and he says, Your Lord. Your Lord. He doesn't see Jesus. But listen, faith is strongest when we don't see. And Saul immediately understands this one has power that even somebody like me that has power has to yield to. And then how much did the chill go up his back when he said, who are you, Lord? He can't see. And he hears the words, I'm Jesus. How much did he shudder? An understatement of the day, say, Uh oh. Uh oh. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. I'm the one you hate so much. I'm the one you're trying to stop. And in that moment, listen now, Saul understands that he has been an offense to heaven because of his sin. Not just his sin of persecuting believers, but all his sin. And for God to forgive him and for him to be used in powerful ways, right at the outset, before his heart is changed, this is always required, he must first acknowledge himself as a sinner. You cannot be saved Listen now, I'm not giving new doctrine. Hear what I'm saying. You cannot be saved without repentance. You cannot be saved without turning and saying, I'm not going that way anymore. That's why John the Baptist's first word was repent. That's why Jesus' first word was repent. That's why the apostles say repent. Because you have to decide I can't do this anymore. The grace of God is so overwhelming and so compelling and God has been gracious and I don't deserve it and I've got to declare to him, I'm awful, I'm nothing, I'm worthless. It is by your grace that I'm saved. It's not by anything I'm doing and Lord, I turn from it. Every single one of us has to come to that point because your sin and my sin caused the death of Jesus Christ. So for Saul, he's just watched the man who stood for Christ and defended Christ and prayed to Christ as he's being killed for Christ. And he looks at that and he says, and I, I believe this is the moment maybe where he first understands what it means to die to self. He'll teach that so well in Ephesians. And I think for The first time he gets it, there is evil in me that I have never seen before and all that I have done and accomplished, Philippians 3, is worthless compared to knowing Christ. So I am yielding myself to Christ. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you persecute. And Saul's life changed right there. And God says, get up. And in verse 6, we see that he obeys. And verse 8, we see that he humbly travels to Damascus. And in verse 9, we see that he prepares himself with fasting for three days. Was that a show? Was that a ploy to trap Christians? Is this sincere? Some of the believers were nervous. Hey, this is Saul. Even even the man that he's going to go see, Ananias, will study next week. He's like, Lord, come on. This is Saul. You want him in my house? What are you, crazy? I mean, he doesn't say that, but that's in his head, right? Really? How do we know this was genuine? How, How do we know when faith is authentic? Let me give you three quick statements. How you know when faith is authentic. Number one, there's a humble and repentant attitude towards sin. Even the smallest hardness towards sin divides the heart and mind and creates a callousness that's easy to discern. How do you know someone who is consistently humble and doesn't draw attention to themselves because they love the Lord and they know that it's all about the Lord and that attitude is exemplary? There is a humble and repentant attitude towards sin even for some of us who have been saved over 35 years. I won't ask for hands. I've been saved 38 years this summer. I, at this point, should have a very humble and repentant attitude towards sin. When sin happens, I should immediately say, Lord, why did I do that? That's not what I want to be. Number two, there's an immediate response when the Lord calls you to act. Paul's response to the call is instantaneous and unhesitant. There's no resistance. There's no doubt about its authenticity. there, There is no argument. Remember, this is the man who was most violently opposed to Jesus Christ, and immediately he's changed. It's even a contrast to Abraham's bargaining and Elijah's pouting, and David's deceptions. and Those were men of God. His conversion is instantaneous. And then third, look at it. There's a readiness to trust the Lord, even when the details aren't clear. It goes without saying, church, that fear and doubt contradict faith. But it is amazing to me how many believers over the year that I have run into and talked to that think it is perfectly acceptable to live in fear, worry, and doubt. God only gives us the information we need to determine whether we're going to trust him. An authentic faith trusts and is content in any circumstance. And Paul exemplifies that early on. He had been feisty and self-righteous and arrogant and argumentative. And even blindness wasn't going to stop him if his heart's still not right. But you can see it. What a beautiful picture. As his friends guide him by the arm and he's walking toward Damascus. Blinded, not, not. oh, I can't wait to get to the synagogue and somebody will show me who the Christians are. Lord, I'm yours. Lead me. Can't see. I don't know what's going on, but this is different. He's humble and dependent physically and spiritually. And this is where we see, let's close with this, the miraculous aspect of God's love and mercy. He doesn't rain judgment down on Saul. And if there was anybody that deserved it, it's him. He doesn't penalize him. He doesn't say, all right, you've been a bad guy. You're going to have to go through a penance process until I know that you have earned the right to serve me. He says, right now, I got plans for you. And these plans are not small. He tells Ananias, look at it just briefly, in verse 15, he says, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name. This guy right here, Ananias, I got a plan for him. I have saved him. I have changed him. He is different. You're going to have to trust me on that. And I have a very distinct purpose. I'm not going to blow him off the page, and I'm not going to make him wait 12 years until he's ready. Right now, I have a purpose for him. He's going to bear my name, and he's perfect for the job because he can talk to the Jews because he knows Judaism and the law. And he was raised a Greek so he can go to the Gentiles, and he's got a brilliant mind, which the Greeks value. So he's got ministry capability, and guess what? He's got spiritual credibility because I just saved him. So he's my guy. He's what I want, and he's got an amazing story. And when he starts to talk about what happens, people are going to get saved. And look at what happens in verses 20 to 22. Saul doesn't waste any time. He meets with the believers for a couple days. That's the training. Right. Oh, you got to be trained. This is his training. He's got the Holy Spirit. And he walks out, and he says, Jesus Christ is Lord. And they go, what? Wait. I need a 20. This? That guy, right? This guy's the one that said that? Refresh my memory. I know I don't have Google, but isn't that guy that's been killing Christians? Yep. Now, I, I, I may be wrong. There's a lot of noise in here. Did he just say Jesus Christ is Lord? Mm-hmm. Did he mean it? Oh, you can't imagine. You cannot imagine. It's an absolute reversal of personality. There's an absolute reversal of purpose. There's an absolute reversal of faith. And people are amazed and they recognize him as the one that had persecuted Christians but now he's standing boldly for Jesus Christ. Let me give you the last truth. Heaven doesn't stay silent when God's work needs to be done. Heaven doesn't stay silent when God's work needs to be done. As those who have been redeemed and delivered we have been given a responsibility now to go tell people the exact same dramatic transformation that happened to Paul happened to me. And Jesus Christ is Lord and when God takes me through challenges and difficulties it's to stoke deeper conviction in me because he's got an assignment for me that I need to follow. I, I gotta say it again. God did not overwhelm Paul. Paul and end his opposition, he strengthened his conviction and gave him a job. And for you and for me and for this church, that is what he is calling us to and that's why we have to keep calling on his name because we need wisdom to say, Lord, I get it. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? What's my assignment? This week, you and I have an assignment. God wants to do something in our lives and through our lives. And you know what? He's got bigger assignments that are just waiting. As Paul walked to Damascus full of arrogance and anger and hostility, he could not have imagined that within a week, he would be standing in the synagogue proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. And you know what? You and I have jobs that are sitting six months, a year, two years. I don't know how long the Lord's going to wait to come back, but, but we've got jobs that are sitting out there that God says, you don't know about it yet? Oh, but I got an assignment for you. I got a job for you. How will you respond? Let's close our eyes. Maybe this morning it's something simple like your heart just is not been with Christ, and you're, you're resistant. And this morning, the evidence has been all around you. you. You need to get saved. You heard me talk about it during communion, but, but it's stronger now than ever. And you don't think you can walk out of this room this morning with that kind of conviction bearing on you and not doing something about it. This morning, God has given you the opportunity to be redeemed from your sin forever. And if you want to know how to do that and what that means, I'd love to talk to you after the service. Randy will talk to you. There will be other people up here at the front if you want to talk to them. Believers, just a couple of you come up afterwards. Just be available. Yes, and if God can change Saul's life, he can change your life. This morning is the time. Believer, let me talk to you for a minute. You need some separation from your past life. Not some separation. You need full separation from your past life. You've been holding on to it. Only you know it, maybe. You're hiding it well from us. Not that we need to know it's between you and the Lord, but you've been holding on to it. You need to let it go. Enough. Enough. holding you back. It's hindering you. There's no joy in your life right now. You're, you're holding on to it. Let it go. I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter. Let it go. Or you just have been hesitant. Lord's stirring your heart, the Lord's calling you to some things, but you're just you're busy. A lot on your plate. Not sure what that means. You got to trust the Lord. I know that's such an easy thing to say, but you got to trust the Lord. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he wants to accomplish in your life. From breathing threats to standing proclaiming Christ in a week. God can do that. God wants to do that in some of our lives. God wants to do a fresh work in some of your lives. You've got to yield yourself to that and say, Lord, whatever you want. And I know that's scary to you, and I know you're fearful of what it will mean, and I want to tell you, there is nothing better than trusting the Lord's leading. Just trust Him. Father, we pray for fresh measures of your mercy this morning. For confidence that we don't have as we trust in you. For an even greater awareness of your leading and your provision in our lives. Lord, you're so good. What a celebration we've had this morning of how great and wonderful you are. Lord, we thank you and praise you for what you have done in our lives and what you're going to continue to do in our lives. We thank you that we look toward eternity and have complete confidence that we're yours and that nothing can take that away. We praise you for that this morning. Now, Father, continue to work in our lives, we pray. Continue to give us the confidence and the boldness to serve you even in days that are evil because we love you. We thank you and praise you, Lord. We thank you and praise you for who you are. We pray this in
1: Jesus' name, amen. We have Parker play through Amazing Grace. And while he does, I want you just to take some time to look in our heart. One of the things that struck me as Paul taught was that we're all on a road to Damascus right now because the smallest sin separates us from where God wants us. There's a powerful ministry that can be done in our lives through us if we open ourselves up to God's spirit. Like Paul said to us to let those things go from our past. So let's pray for one more minute. We'll park our plays and then we're going to sing Amazing Grace together. If someone needs ministry, if someone wants prayer, the front is always open. Feel free to come down. We're happy to pray with you. But this is a moment where we can set our stake in the ground and say, from this moment forward, Lord, I'm going to turn my life fully over to you. Not hold on to those little things. So let's let's just pray for.